Hi, and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Sean Doxy, who is a friend, an alternative comedian, and a pole dancing comedian, which is a crossover of genres that I would not think would work. But I saw Sean's show in Edinburgh this year, and it was an absolute delight. Um, we sat down and talked about all sorts of things, but among other things, and I think really fascinatingly, the ways in which the different art forms that Sean has inhabited value the financial recompense of art very differently and the ways in which um, gender and class play into that. It's a really interesting conversation. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. I always enjoy talking to Sean and I'm really glad that we could record this conversation for you. If you want to support this podcast, please share it with your friends, do the social media thing, talk about it at the post office or um, patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is if you go to the about page you can find access to all of my stand-up specials my podcasts my blogs um, for free and uh, as well as that you get my weekly tea with Alice salons and my weekly writers meetings and my occasional book clubs which are no homework book clubs so we all sit together in the room and we read a short story or we watch something together because one of the bad things about book clubs I've always found is that they make you feel like you're not doing your homework uh, and they add a stress to what should be a joyful experience of sharing and discussing art. So uh, the writers' meetings are also a lot of fun. We write for an hour and then we workshop everyone's work. And we have a really diverse range of people from different genres and mediums working together and um, helping each other make their work better. Please join me there. Or the salons where we just have a chat about interesting or difficult ideas. So patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is the place to go for that. Other than that, unbound.com, write in Alice Fraser and you will get access to the Dancy Lagarde Reader, which you can pre-order now. It's available online, unbound.com, and write in Alice Fraser, because I guarantee you will not spell Dancy Lagarde correctly. Um, that's all from me. You're having tea with Alice. I'll talk to you again next week. So, who are you and what are you drinking? Hello, uh, my name's Shan. I'm a pole dancing comedian in the final week of the Fringe Festival. I'm drinking a tea that you made me that I forgot. Um, I forgot what's in this. This is fancy billionaire tea. Yes, it's called Pu'er tea, and it was yeah given to my dad by his eccentric billionaire neighbour. <laughs> it came in a little black cube, and I was like, well, I can't not drink this. Yeah, it looks yeah the cube that it comes in looks like it's got a Rolex in it or something. It looks like the dark matter that like in the Da Vinci Code is sort of hidden underneath the Vatican. If I ever do an indie like sci-fi film I will use that as the like, like the MacGuffin. <laughs> Please do yeah. I don't feel detonated but I feel gently pepped and I like it a lot. Excellent. Um, <laughs> what have you been wrestling with? Um, existentially like yeah. generally? Yeah I mean other than the pole obviously which oh, is God. huge. Um, yeah, so much stuff. I mean, okay, so it's sort of the final week of the Fringe Festival and I guess the end point of what for me has been like a two-year project of how do I make pole dancing and comedy work together, um, which is something that I think about obsessively. <laughs> no one else is as interested in it as me. Um, and I guess at the moment I'm thinking about whether it has worked, um, whether this is what I want to be doing with my life, um, how I'm going to make it work out for the next year, two years, three years. Um, so yeah, kind of, it's a bit of a collision in my brain of 
artistic priorities, practical financial priorities, and also just general existential things like, oh my God, how am I going to create a manageable existence for myself that I enjoy? So nothing heavy, just no, a no, general no. like Manage- Manageable and sustainable existence is this like wild thing. I was thinking about this the other day, and then I'll go back to um, the poll question. Mm. Um, my, I feel so grateful that I was looking after my mum when I entered the professional world. Mm. Because, I mean, other than the fact that I couldn't really exist in a law firm, what, it, what, what having care duties meant was that I was forced to build a resilient and flexible career that meant that I can now have a child and a job and do both of them at the same time, mm. which at the moment, I like for so many of my friends, so many of the women in my mother's group, it's a zero-sum game. It's child or job you prioritize one or the other and I get to prioritize one or the other on a day-to-day basis Mm. so I get to be like oh well she's a bit clingy and needy at the moment I cannot I can write my stuff tomorrow or I can stay up late and do it or I can wake up early and do it or you know I can adjust things on the fly Mm. in a way that most people are not allowed to and I'm so like I know it sounds sort of like religious to say I'm grateful for the hardship that caused me to do that but I am you know like I don't think it would have occurred to me to build a life like yeah. this no, that's on purpose. And like you built up that skill set by accident, like without realizing it was what you're having to do just through necessity. Yeah. Yeah. So something I think about a lot in terms of how pole and comedy are compatible or incompatible is I loved what you talked about in your show of sort of the DNA of comedy is teenage men and it's teenage men who at some point like they just hope they're going to get their writing job or their big TV break at some point and it for all to just kind of work out around them. The DNA of pole dancing is women with dependents. Like, um, it's, you know, again, this is only one narrative. Pole has been, like stand-up, it's been, like, invented so many different times in so many different contexts. But the classic stripper pole or the pole that you'd now learn in studios which comes from stripping this was invented by women who were juggling care responsibilities so much unpaid work and needing to just do what worked to make money and the way that has stuck around in the pole industry is that like yeah flexible working hours and talking about money from the offset from the offset isn't like ick in the same way that yeah, it is yeah, in comedy. You're, not, you're not doing things for exposure yeah. it's not considered unartistic to be interested in money a hundred percent all that stuff still exists as well and there's i mean again similar to comedy there's been a real issue with gentrification of the pole industry which as a like white oxbridge grad i'm so part of that problem (laughs) yeah totally even if my like pole background was stripping it's still like a very privileged person like taking up space in that and i try and be aware of that but um like in comedy there's a big divide in pole between people pole dancing because they need to make money and then people who can spend money on pole and and in terms of like visibility in the industry and people having like kind of clout and power, it's often the people who were, you know, paying for pole dancing classes who have a lot of visibility. And then people who are um, stripping, but also often instructing, kind of getting a bit left behind because the things you have to do to stay financially afloat are not going to open up time to like do the big glossy competition. Um, and like, Kind of what we were like drag similarly yeah 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 completely um and also like kind of what we were talking about earlier with this strange like psychic space that edinburgh's in where people (laughs) people just have this bizarre fixation with like the awards and stuff that exists in poll as well because it's such a um nebulous industry that 
any kind of marker of professionalism or taken seriously is like really precious currency and people kind of fight over that. But I still think like, it just like having a foot in each world, it just feels so different being within pole because that kind of awareness you were talking about of just like, oh, okay, so the person I'm looking after after is having a rougher day. I'm just gonna change my pole lesson plan or like, you know, just sort of move things around to be more resilient and flexible. Like, yeah, I feel like pole dancers often come in with that set of thinking. Whereas, I mean, I feel like I've met comics who've been comics for 30 years where if they're having a bit of a, like, they've had one argument with their partner, they're like, oh, I can't write today. And it's like, (laughs) what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Got to deliver, man. Yeah. So on the existential side, this kind of sustainability thing, you have a model for it in one industry and then the opposite in comedy where it it is built on these people who have a fallback plan or... I mean, even if they don't have a fallback plan, I remember having this conversation with... I, I did a gig at the Opera House and my friend um, from back at university came and also a comedian friend. You know, not name them. <laughs> um, but my, my friend who from university, I was saying, how are you going? She's like, I just bought my second investment property. I just had my second child, um, getting divorced but co-parenting very amicably with my uh, husband. I've just got a promotion at work. I'm now in charge of this like international department. I just feel really like I've got my life in control. I turned to my comedian friend and I said, and how are you doing? And he said, I've spent the last six months sharing a double bed with a another comedian <laughs> also straight male comedian platonic friend yeah um, and, and then I was like oh oh <laughs> that's been okay um, and then then my my university friend turned to my comedian friend and was like no no no, it's okay I'm I'm 38 and he said I'm I'm 39 <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> and it was just that thing of like and it's not not that they're you know, not to judge my comedian friend, but it is a world in which, you know, she has two children, she has responsibilities, she has this thing. And I don't think her work is more ethical or anything than his, but he has managed to skate through on a life where he can do that. Like, I mean, he probably doesn't want to do that. No. He can. It's so interesting. And yeah, like, it's hard to look at that situation without doing stuff that becomes like, income shaming you know and it's like again it's such a wild west of an industry if some people just get lucky but I'm sorry to be the first person who brings this up but I think there is just a bit of a gender thing in that as well of um I mean the way that often men are socialized is to kind of a um get super preoccupied with these weird status battles with other men and it's the thing of like oh no but once I break through it'll all fall into place or like Things that are basic requirements of your life, like having somewhere to sleep, are the kind of like, oh, well, at some point a woman will arrive and kind of sort it out around me. Yes, that that same comedian (laughs) once got through an entire Adelaide festival without having to pay for accommodation through the medium of Tinder. (laughs) (laughs) And again, it is this odd thing where, as you say, not to income shame, but this this is somebody who is respected for his art. Yeah. And, and in the context of comedy, those things are not seen as worrying or signs of somebody who needs to get their life together. Yeah. They're seen as worthy sacrifices in the pursuit of his art. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's just funny. I don't, yeah, again, without putting any kind of like value judgment on it, it is peculiar to me. And then, and then the value judgment comes in when it means that somebody who has any responsibilities at all, who has to 
deliver for their family, can't take the gigs this guy can take, can't yep. say yes to the opportunities this guy can because they can't be as flexible as he can. Yeah, 100%. Something, and it's going back to the kind of existential clash between comedy and pole, something I've been thinking about a lot, and it's again with this person and this person being kind of revered for their art, but also probably has a bit of a mythos around them. I think that um, something that is integral to comedy in a way, is like performing failure. And it's the sort of, um, you know, performing the person who's just like a freewheeling disaster. I think people are quite fascinated by that. Yeah. Like the Pete Davidson thing. It's just like, just wanting to see that train keep, keep crashing. And um, it's also like, I feel like Catherine Ryan is such a good comedian that she can get up and talk about how well her like marriage and family life is going. And people are like, oh yeah, it's funny. But I think you have to be so good to get away with getting on stage and being like, yeah, my life is great. I don't think people seek that out for comedy, generally. Um, and that's, um, it's such an well, interesting... People go to comedy to feel better about themselves mm. or better about the world. So you, it's, that, that, a shortcut to feeling better about the world is having somebody doing worse than you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if you want to make people feel better about themselves while not delivering a self-flagellating process, then you have to be better at the job, full stop. And then sort of on top of that, if you want to do something tricky like what you're doing in your poll show, talking about existential dread, or what I try to do in my shows and pe what people like Laura Davis carry off so well, or mm. you know uh, Daniel Kitson or even James Nokise, where you're carrying kind of a heavier load with your comedy, making it feel good at the end for the audience, cathartic or fulfilling or nourishing, is the challenge. Yeah. That's how you know it's comedy that they feel better walking out than yeah. they did coming in totally yeah and I think there's another thing with that of like yeah you can't I think actually make people feel better by showing just you feel bad like I think it's something that um I think it's something that people who stay in it learn quite quickly that like we all kind of joke about like hey this is therapy but you're paying me ha 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 but actually if you do that like it's not gonna it's not gonna work because if like an audience one of my least favorite forms of comedy is yeah. that it's like no you're not ready to do this no. particularly when it's somebody making fun of something that is deeply clearly looking at them deeply still yeah painful and then if if they've written a joke that's good enough to make the audience laugh rather than just feel uncomfortable the audience laughs you can see it hit them that their fear is justified or their pain is is actually for a reason that it is you know terrible to have been adopted or whatever, like whatever it is yeah. that they're working through and then they react like oh fuck and then the audience goes wait a minute you made me hurt you yeah i didn't come to hurt you oh my How god yeah dare you make me hurt you yeah yeah and if you're yeah using kind of like amateurish like therapy language it's like oh you're just re-triggering yourself by being up here and we've all kind of enabled you and yeah, it feels yeah, yeah. awful yeah totally and um I also think like so there is um there's a missing bit of my poll show which is about um sexual harassment and like it's something that I kind of I want to do some writing about it but it just it never translated into comedy um poll for me just in my personal life has been a massive tool in kind of just like healing a relationship between me and my body like on that kind of stuff and um reclaiming some autonomy in that sense and that's like I mean it kind of surprised me when I first heard this and then it became like something over and over again it is such a like it's like the oldest story with people who come into pole dancing because it's mostly women there's people who have had like awful experiences who then come to pole and they basically rebuild their own sense of control over that part of their lives um 
probably the most famous pole dancer in the UK, a woman called Kitty Valore, who's amazing. So she's talked about a horrific sexual assault that she suffered as a teenager, but now her pole style, it has this like, it has this real defiance to it because it's all about like reclaiming your sexuality and your pleasure and like that kind of space as being yourself. And um, people just flock to it. It's amazing. It's also, I've taken her classes and you just come out of it feeling so like everything's tingling and you're like, oh my God, this is so fun. Um, but I couldn't put that stuff in the show because A, I wasn't finding it fun to perform. Like I was trying to like, I guess like, the way that I describe my like creative practice as a comic is I make a list of stuff that's bothering me and I just attack it with surrealism and just kind of find the weirdest way in to try and explode it. And um, I had a way in to talk about this stuff and I had a whole routine um, and it was just horrible to perform and I felt like I wasn't giving the audience the respect of there being like a genuine kind of conclusive uplifting finish on this because it kind of wasn't finished in my life and also I kind of felt like artistically I came into it with the right reasons I was like there's this thing that's very live in me that is kind of unresolved and I want to use pole comedy as the kind of engine to engage with that and heal it but it was then like this doesn't work in the show I'm having a horrible time doing it and it yeah it was that thing of I felt like I was showing stuff to the audience that was not um finished and wasn't kind of for the show I was like this is stuff to then take away and like deal with separately um and um so one thing that's been nice about the show is I've been working with Alexander Bennett on it who's been an amazing director and he's really like held the show from various different angles and he really supported me in like um developing that whole section of it because like the show is about dread and the dread comes from political existential stuff and then also kind of personal stuff all of that area of it is a huge like underlying factor in like why I'm so obsessed with pole dancing. But um, yeah, he really kind of like held that material with me and like we explored it, we scrutinized it from every angle. But when it came down to it and I was just like, I'm just having a horrible time like doing this in the, I just, I feel sticky and awful afterwards. I just feel horrible. He was like, then it doesn't live in the show. And it was that thing of A, you don't owe the audience a complete picture of like what's going on in your world and also you kind of owe it to yourself to make a real separation between there's like you as performer artist and what you show people and then there's just your life. I am a massive believer in having that separation for yourself as, as well so that you never are tricked into believing that the person you are on stage is the person you are in real life. Oh my god yeah. I have, I have huge huge um lines that i will not cross you know I, I don't talk about my private life i don't talk about my relationship i don't talk about my sexuality i don't and 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 they're fairly arbitrary the ones that i choose but because they're there it's funny because people are like why won't you talk about that you talk about your feelings about this or your, your mother's death or really intimate things mm. and I'm like, i feel like i can because i know that this is art this is a story this is a very refined very thin line through the truth in order to achieve a particular end artistically mm. so yes i understand what you mean that the, this like feeling that some audience members have and i think it's part of this like parasocial world that we live in that you owe them your secrets yeah my god no do you have like, a... no, no no my secrets give me my power yeah. I have my heart in a box in a tree <laughs> so that yeah. i can do the rest in a little magic gray box full yeah. of weird tea yeah. do you have a distinctive thing of like something that i kind of try and um, use as a kind of internal thermometer of like what is for material and what's just for me is 
if I feel like the material is easy to find, yeah, it's, I've kind of never really thought about it in terms of having sort of um, thematic lines, you know, like I feel like I haven't made the sort of buckets of like, um, uh, maybe it's also this is just because I've been talking about being bi for like 10 years, like at nauseam <laughs> to the point where I'm just like, oh, here we go. Um, but yeah, I feel like I haven't sort of, dis- um, I haven't separated it out in terms of like, no, this list of things is for me and this list of things is the audience. It's been more of a sense of like, if the material appears about something, then obviously when there's other people's like, like for example, if it be anything to do with a relationship, people can join the dots often between who you're talking about. So you do have a consent thing. Like I have a thing in the poll show where I talk about a woman who I met at poll camp, who is a missiles designer. That's true. And like, I, that's an odd, yeah, that's a very specific uh, Venn diagram overlap. I can't imagine there are many of such. No, but I still like, before I was doing the material, I messaged her on Facebook saying like, hi, I want to use this anecdote in my show. Um, but I will, budget so for example the gender well actually this material didn't end up going into the show anyway but um when that bit was longer I changed the gender of her children and like you know there was I really tried to obfuscate it so if somebody had met someone at a poll class and they'd had this information they wouldn't be able to trace it to her and I felt like that was quite important in terms of being like I am using quite something quite personal that belongs to someone else and even though that whole bit is not about a missiles designer. It's about um, it's about work not being your identity because I'm contrasting it with like I'm shocked at meeting someone who's a missiles designer, but she's shocked at meeting someone who used to be a stripper, and we're both looking at each other like, what? But we're also just two people taking a pole dancing class. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I really I felt a bit of the responsibility in that of like because. The material just offered itself up. It was one of those things where, like, it wasn't hard to write jokes for that bit. They just kind of appeared. Um, and um, I mean, it's a great bit in the show. Thanks. I really like it. It's actually, um, it's the bit in the show that, it's the only bit that people have come up after and talked to me and disagreed with, because um, it's, it's come around to being a self-contained bit about work isn't your identity. And I have a friend who is a stripper in Edinburgh who came to see the show, and we went for a drink afterwards. And um, she said that, she really does feel like being a stripper is part of her identity, like it is part of her real sense of self. Um, and it was something that when she found that, she was like, like she feels like even when she stops dancing, she will have been a stripper forever, like it's part of her. I think comedians feel this as well, like comedians never really retire. Yeah. See, I, I um, instinctively recoil from identity labels in that way. Like mm. I don't... I try not to think of myself as a comedian. I think I'm doing comedy when I'm doing comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting when it comes to the job of motherhood, because one of the things I've struggled talk about in my show as well is that, like, I'm, I'm, yeah, how much of this is my identity, how much of it is my job. Of course it's something that's absorbing me at the moment, but I think there's a lot of people for whom it is, like, really cataclysmically self-changing. Mm, yep, yep. Uh, in a way that I haven't found it for me. For me, it's a, a thing that I love doing, that I'm interested in, that I'm absorbed in. And I talk about it in the same way as if I were doing a PhD. Are you talking about comedy or motherhood here? Or both? <laughs> motherhood. <laughs> or both. Yeah. That it's this thing that I'm doing that I'm interested in. But because I have been interested in many different things and done things in an absorbing way in my life, it doesn't feel that thing where people are like, I never realised life could be like this. It's like I've been very absorbed and interested in things before. Mm. And this is a lifelong project. This is a thing that I will keep doing until I die, I hope. Um, so, But at the same time, 
yet yeah, hasn't changed in my head the drop down identity category menu yeah thing. that's so interesting i feel like my friends who Which i know is just me doing stuff yeah you know? totally my friends who i think have struggled most with parenting and like i'm 33 so it's that thing of like people like close friends from school tend to have like i guess the average age of their kids is between sort of like three and 11. So, you know, they're kind of like juggling stuff with young children. The people who'd be most unhappy are the ones who I think have felt kind of like hostage to motherhood. Again, that's not a value judgment or criticism. Like it's it's completely like a circumstantial thing. But um, I feel like my friends who kind of will have a complete thing of like, a binary of like today I was a good mother or a bad mother as opposed to like well it's a kind of task list you know and like sometimes it goes well or badly um also yeah I feel like I've been a better comedian for identifying less as a comedian like um, I feel like um being able to like pick it up and put it down and also again I think it comes from that respect with the audience thing of I feel like my stuff has improved so much from being a bit more disciplined of like I'm there to do a job and also it's not their problem if I've had like a good day or a bad day or if I'm feeling like shit about the material today da 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 like sort of and it's weird because it sounds so unartistic but I feel it's kind of the opposite like turning up to do the job I think has just made me better at it and um I've also just in terms of yeah just thinking about money and life and stuff I've really tried to break away from this kind of Uh, the way that we sort of like lionize the idea of being an artist of like no you must completely give yourself over to it and stuff I'm like on whose fucking dime like how is that gonna work (laughs) yeah this terrible mythology that was like juiced up I don't know that it was invented during this period but like juiced up certainly by the romantics of of art as this sort of divinely inspired magical thing that would sort of appear in your inbox you know like Coleridge waking up from an opium dream yeah (laughs) you know we're where you just look at that group of people who produced art and you're like, also the, the, the best generators of material of their age just happened to be friends, did they? Mm. They all just happened to hang out together. It wasn't mm. to do with any like circumstantial sort of things that were put together yeah, or the way weird. that they worked or encouraged each other or supported each other. Or Shared resources. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, they all went on holiday and you know Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Like all of this stuff has been left out of the narrative of, of the kind of the brilliant inspired genius and that feeds into the way that it's easier for people who have a fallback or a support network you know my friend who sleeps on on the couches and on the ladies and all, all of that it's quite he resourceful has, to be he fair has, yeah. he has <laughs> he has wealthy parents who he can always fall back on yeah it makes it safe for him to do those things of course yeah um and and makes it safe for him to take those risks and there's just something in there of like leaving leaving resources out of the equation is unjust only to the people who don't have resources. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, kind of bringing back to Paul, I feel like um, I was thinking about it in terms of how these things weirdly have appeared in my life. The other existential thing is, you know how like within stand-up, there's a whole like mixed bag of... Uh, the reasons and um, I guess steps that people became stand-up comedians like you've got some comics like I met up with a friend this week who I was talking to you about this and they were like I've, I've only ever wanted to be a comic like it's just like that was the thing from the beginning just want to be a comedian and then you've got like another bunch of people who are like actors for example mm-hmm. and they were like 
I'm sick of never being cast in stuff. I can write my own material. And then you get a Jack Whitehall or whatever. Um, acting was the original in, and then they could do some writing, so became good comedians. And then there's the other box of people, obviously it's much more broad than this, but who were writers who got sick of no one picking up their emails. That's my box. I moved to London really wanting to do TV script writing and just getting absolutely nowhere. So just started performing comedy and now I'm a pole dancer and I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck happened? <laughs> um, but I feel like, yeah, the thing that we were talking about with um, the sort of experience of needing to have more flexibility and resilience in a career because there's all these other things on your horizon. I think pole has really protected me from how prevalent that can be in comedy because I feel like... And it depends what kind of person you are and how much confidence you have, but I can get a bit susceptible to like, oh my God, maybe I don't, maybe I don't want it enough because I'm not prepared to just like blow all my money on doing some mad experimental thing or like maybe I'm not a committed enough, um, yeah, comic for doing this kind of elaborate self-sacrifice. Yeah, you don't know that you're a real artist until you're dying of TB in an attic. Yeah, totally. If you can't get an award, what you need to do is like... Put yourself in the hospital and that's how you know you're a real artist. Right, completely. And it's obviously bonkers, but I have sort of... And again, just on the basic things of, like, the the way that my friends at the Fringe will, like, run themselves ragged doing all these other things. And I feel like you're not having a lot of fun with these gigs. It feels like you're really um, crucifying yourself for this, this, this. I feel like Paul has been such a useful reality check on that because, because of people being more upfront about money. And Paul isn't perfect like there's a lot of really good people in the poll industry at the moment having the conversation about basic rates for example Mm -hmm. like and trying to get other people to not undercut the market by um accepting being paid less than 200 pounds for a pole dancing performance to just literally put a figure on it um obviously people will the people with rich parents like obviously will um but um uh, i think like the sort of um yeah bringing those ideas from Paul back into comedy has really kind of shielded me from the worst of it because I have a case study in front of me of like you can be an artist not like that because your life encompasses so much more than just this one thing well and and also I think part of that kind of self-flagellatory thing is that artist myth the artist myth that you must suffer for your art it's so boring and it's so it is it's been going around like it's not it's not original or unique it is the you know uh, it's the dick joke of <laughs> artist, artistic self-conception, <laughs> but yeah, it is that you know we ha- we live in a very sort of formless industry where it's it's very easy to see other people's success and it's very difficult to measure your own and it's very difficult to accept your own success or to go oh this is a metric I can value you know this is a thing that this marks a success and stick with it because yeah. there's almost an automatic downgrade the moment you do a gig that you've been working for you're like well it can't be that good I got to do it. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so this is one of the ways that comedians make themselves feel their legitimacy through suffering. Yeah, if you're working so hard that you're having a nervous breakdown in week two because you've you haven't slept and you've drunk till three o'clock in the morning and you've done twelve spots a day, you've been running to and fro on cobblestones and eating only chips, like. Then two weeks and you're like, well, I'm a real artist. I, my mental health is completely broken down. Yeah, That's how I know. Totally. Um, there's um, someone I'm friends with who's kind of doing a bit of an entry into stand-up at the moment, which is really, really exciting. But I can feel this person seeing the kind of that mythos creeping in of like, oh my God, I'd be working late nights and kind of bouncing around and I can just be like chain smoking with the other comics outside the da-da-da. And, um, and, and you know, some people do that for like an entirety of a career. But I feel like... <laughs> Tom Tuck. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I 
feel kind of like it's quite sweet. That sounds really patronizing. It's quite sweet to see that kick in because it looks like, oh my God, comedy is going to be this glorious break from my normal life in my office job kind of thing. And then you get sorry, to like two or three years down the line where your friends are comedians who have had to treat it a bit more like an office job just to like stay alive and to be able to keep doing it. I well, also and to be able to keep doing it interestingly. Yeah, yeah. Because you can be the hard drinking, chain smoking comedian but you can't keep generating interesting material you end up a road dog doing the same set that they've done for 20 years because you you've, you've destroyed your brain yeah totally yeah i also think it's like with the rare exception you know who makes everybody else think that they can escape yeah totally i also i mean i think i'm just grumpy now but i see these people and i'm like Okay, so when you're dying of multiple organ failure, who is the person who's going to be, like, doing your grocery shopping? Like, you've got to look after yourself. Mm. <laughs> Coming in with my stick, like, oi. Oi, 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 yeah. Vitamins. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. Have a, I have a deep and personal resentment against that recklessness because I've, I've lost friends to it. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, sorry, another thing just on the kind of um, whole thing and the um, strange, uh, like suffering self-sabotage pipeline of comedy there is um and again i'm making kind of big sweeping generalizations about both industries i think that um comedians often labor with the idea in mind that your windfall moment is going to come and these things i mean we can be hyper specific about them there's like getting booked for live at the apollo in the uk is a big step up or it would have been kind of like oh when you're on mock the week and then your tour sells better there are these things that come in that i mean people kind of uh ballooned them in their heads as much more of like oh great this will pay off my last 10 years of debt which probably won't happen but there are there are these things that um are then a major step up that doesn't exist in pole dancing so there just isn't a thing of like oh but as soon as i get this it'll pay off so from the beginning people have to create their own success because it there just aren't those like quote-unquote big break moments yeah you're not um, paying down big to play the lottery exactly kind of yeah 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 and um there are also like as with any industry there are markers of like you know you might win a competition or what most people do is the kind of high point of their career is they finally open their own pole dancing studio um like that's kind of i guess the equivalent of getting your apollo gig to make <laughs> a really like lazy comparison um and um i mean again there's a whole thing with like coming up to do the Edinburgh Fringe, these competitions in pole world are paid to play as well. And it might, in the way that it's like, oh, I got a five-star review from the Scotsman. If you place in a competition, you can then up the price of your workshops as a pole dancer, or you might get more opportunities. But there isn't the similar thing of it being kind of like, oh, and once this comes through, everything will be fine. With pole dancers, there's more of an awareness from the beginning that it's like, I'm on my own. Like, it's I have to pick my way up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it, I think it's very, very telling that, I don't know if this persists in the UK, but certainly in Australia it is, um, teaching comedy is seen as almost a step down. <laughs> Which is really odd to me, because I love, I, like, I, one of my favourite things to do every week is my writers' meetings, mm. and the workshopping what people are doing. But yeah, there is this thing of well, you know, they they they've ha they have to teach comedy in order to make a living, and the idea of doing anything in order to make a living within the arts is seen as sort of yeah, totally, suspect. totally, especially when that's visible. But it comes down to like what you were describing with your one. The only people who don't 
have to do that. And like, I'm speaking as a moment, like, you know, the exception being a masterclass. You're allowed oh, yeah. to do a masterclass. <laughs> that says you're a master. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, people who get to cloak over where the other income comes from, it's like, it's because your parents are paying you a living allowance every yeah, month. Or you have a wealthy partner <laughs> yeah. or, you know, some other thing. Yeah. Have you found that it's made you better at comedy doing the teaching as well? Um, so the, the, the writers meeting has definitely made me better at writing because the, the people who come are writing everything from like academic stuff to musicals to mm. poetry to and just turning your and it, it, what it has trained my brain to do better. And if I hadn't been a, a, a lawyer, well, quitting law, it was co- comedy or academia. Those mm. were the two options. And I thought, well, you don't need to be young to do academia. That's an option that's on the table for later if I want to go down that route. And and over the last 10 years, academia has gotten worse yep, to be yep. in and more <clears throat> more gig economy and more stressful and, you know, in many ways less under control than comedy. Totally. So I feel like I made the right call. But there was part of me. I've always loved teaching. I've tutored since high school. And in the writers' meeting specifically, it comes down at its core to you're using words to try and achieve a particular thing. No matter what the genre is, whether it's children's books or songwriting or uh, you know a speech for work what's your intent how are you using the words are you doing it successfully and that has made me such a better writer mm. because to bring it right down to kind of first principles of writing mm. um, and I also love it I love you know there are people who've published work as a result of the workshops it makes me super happy up here at the Edinburgh Fringe one of the like great delights was that I you know would see people from my Patreon in the audience, and then I would see them going to shows together. Amazing! That's so, so they great. Made each other ah, me. Like, I just like I love oh. this. It made, like really like oh, I can't yeah. tell you like it's like a proper like tears to my eyes kind That's of. That's so like, great. And I don't want that to sound patronising, but it's like oh, my little people that I brought together, yes. I created like friends. <laughs> it's like oh. That's so good. Do you also feel like in terms of your own creativity? Is it really freeing to say you're working with someone who, I don't know, is writing a virology PhD or something to be able to like basically pick up the toys from someone else's box and then just play with them? Does it kind of like make different connections in your own, in your brain that you then bring into your own stuff? Yes, absolutely. So one of the, so that I do the workshops with the group and then I also have like one-on-one consultations. Mm. Um, and those are fantastic because they're like 45 minutes long. Someone brings me a thing that they're working on. And we just bounce ideas around. Like one was an academic paper where someone has like a lot of footnotes and end notes and things that they wanted to bring into the text. A lot of second thoughts and caveats mm. and everything because they're trying to tell a very complicated story. And they're like, I like the way you use kind of subclauses in your comedy. Mm. Can we talk about how to make this work for my book? And so I was like, well, I was thinking about the Torah and the way that the Torah is laid out with the central text in the middle and then the commentary around the edge and then the commentary about the commentary around the edge. Like how do you represent these things or like... Um, the kind of, tra- I used to have a translation of Dante, which was the English on one side and the Italian on the other, so you got to kind of choose wild whether which way to go, like, all of the, and then, so just for 45 minutes, you get this, like, interesting creative problem dumped in your lap, and you get to kind of turn it upside down. Yeah. And then you go away, like, ah, buzzing, and thinking about, yeah, how do I, you know, for my book that I'm writing at the moment... I'm going to do all these footnotes and things and how am I going to represent them in the text and like will it be different for the ebook will I use hype like all of that stuff yeah great and get to kind of play in that ball pond for a while yeah, to, yeah. it's so it's so great so somebody comes and like books into my because 
I use the Calendly thing. So it just appears in my calendar. And they're just like, I'm just going to drop a bomb of like new ideas that you would never otherwise have met. Amazing. Into your day. And you're like, bah, you know, so I've never cool. thought about page layout before <laughs> and now I'm having dreams about it you know? <laughs> that's so fun yeah um what you said about basically boiling it down to the core of what is writing it's like so using words to achieve a purpose my friend Arlene who is a pole dancer in Ireland um so she's a pole dancer writer like she ran a pole dancing academy but she has written just loads of other like really cool artsy stuff as well she has boiled down um I guess you'd call it an artistic mission statement, but honestly, the core of her practice in all areas of her work, it's um, overcoming self-limiting beliefs. That's it. Pole is one of her tools on that. And she's like, she helped me choreograph a um, pole routine for my first ever performance. It was amazing working with her because she really picked up like the intentions of what I was trying to do with that. And then once we'd identified that, it was then just about like hanging different possibilities on it with the pole, but it wasn't about the pole dancing. It was about nailing down the idea. But yeah, she has a similar thing of whether it's through her writing or visual art or running an academy or like doing one on one pole teaching. It's sensing what the limiting beliefs with a person are and going, cool, how do we find a way to blast that open? And the stuff that has kind of gathered around her work is incredible. Like I emceed a pole showcase um, that so it was at her academy. But the stuff people had created for this was wild. There was a dancer. Her name's Clarice, I loved her. She did a pole routine about working through postpartum depression. There were this, there's this like collective of art philosophers on the East Coast of Ireland, yeah, who did a pole thing about women in the textile industry. And what? it was wild. Yeah, I mean, I was obsessed. It was kind of like Billie Eilish meets um, like economic theory. And it was just, and then just loads of stuff with fabric. But yeah, like the I mean, stuff that it the, produces I mean, my was wild. obsessed with all those Irish ballads about, mm. you know, like Poverty Knock and about this kind of the Industrial Revolution. And like I was, that, those were my nursery, like bedtime wild. songs for all these like Industrial Revolution weaving songs. Yeah, that's so cool. And yeah, with Arlene also like, and... So there's a fine tradition in that area of the world. Yeah, 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 completely. Also, like, there's a huge reckoning in that area of the world with what it is to be a woman in society. And um, so Arlene is, I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not, like, dumping spoilers. She talks about this, like, on her website and publicly. Something that she's been working on for a long time is a memoir of how she, kind of like me, became a pole dancer basically by accident um, and how it completely um, changed her ideas of feminism, autonomy, like... I mean, in Ireland, they're still recovering from, what is it, like, the laundries? Like, you know, just, like, where women who were impregnated were then just, like, put into slave labour for the rest of their lives. Like, and she's, you know, as a pole artist, she also basically created the pole scene in Ireland. This has literally just become a, like, fangirl dump about Arlene Caffrey, but she's great. But, um, yes, in terms of, like, what you were describing with your workshops is, like, let's get to the core of what writing is, and then it's expansive. Like, it can just inhabit so many different things. That's, like... Paul is one of the ways that she has done that. It's kind of been about more like what are self-limiting beliefs that we can hold and what are tools that we can use to engage with that and maybe blast them out of the way or maybe just like sit with them for a while. Yeah. So there are, yeah, there are two things that sort of come up in my head as a result of you saying that. One is that if I feel like anything is interesting and has depth if you're interested in it. Mm. The thing that makes something interesting is not that it is inherently anything. It's that you bring something to it. And so things like, you know, romance novels or pole or 
whatever motherhood all of these things are can be intellectual exercises can be artistic exercises mm. can be profound and meaningful and shareable and insightful if you bring the right head to them mm. and then the other thing that it made me think of which is slightly more tangential is the way in which being pregnant changed how i felt about what work is mm. because when you're pregnant part of your job is to sit down and go what do i feel like like what do i do i feel like some pineapple <laughs> do i feel like a nap do i feel like some socialism <laughs> yeah, yeah to, like to actually do that made me realize how i had never been taught to do that mm. i've never been encouraged to do that i've never been told that that was a thing that you should or ought to do um it's not considered work it's but it takes attention yeah. and you can do it right and you can do it wrong and there is a direct result on your baby yeah <laughs> and on how easily pregnancy goes and on how easy your birth is and like not that you have control necessarily over that stuff but that it's there is a kind of an attitude that you have no control over, over that stuff and you mm. actually do and this is part of the work and it, it it can be done well and it can be done badly and there's so many intersecting narratives that engage over the process of birth giving and motherhood that are resistant to the idea that it is a job that can be done well. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of one narrative is that you're you're a born mother, you know, you're you're, you're sort of naturally a mother or not naturally a mother. Very dangerous because it means that you think you can't work at it or be good at it. Also that it's very wrong to tell people that they can be bad at motherhood because it's already so guilt-ridden it's already so intense why would you bring in this additional level of judgment so keep your hands off be very careful don't talk about this stuff this sounds exhausting <laughs> all, and then so there's all these different overlapping things that come in to say don't don't think about this um don't don't engage with it intellectually mm. um but uh, we, we have to, we have, we've hit our limit Speaking because the baby has just come home. Um, where can people find you online? I'm on Instagram at Shandoxy. Um, I'm on, I mean, I'm on all the social media at Shandoxy. And my website, Shandoxy.com, is where you can get my mailing list, which is my favourite way to chat to people. And come to a podcast. Thank <laughs> They're you for really having fun. tea with me. Oh my me. God, it's so nice to chat. Thank you. Hi, mate. Oh my God. Oh, do you know her or do you not? This dolphin mistress we have got. Elsie Thompson, it is her name, and she helps the dolphins at every frame. Lousy rifle, doll.